You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. Sometimes I have to admit that the lectionary readings for Sunday are so full that it's difficult to choose just one. So bear with me. We're going to walk through both the Hebrew text and the gospel reading this morning. And today is the next chapter of a long ancestral story that unfolds in Genesis. Jacob, the heel grabber, the birthright stealer, the trickster turned Mark, is now a wealthy chieftain in his own right. He's been called back home by a dream. And he's also fleeing his father-in-law, hightailing out of town with his wives, his concubines, his children, his servants, and everything he owns, his flocks and his property. And he's heading back to face the brother that he had wronged so many years ago, for there's unfinished business between the two of them. And the narrator tells us that Jacob is greatly afraid he's distressed, and perhaps this is a sign of a guilty conscience. I mean, after all these years, Jacob has to sense the gravity of his past deeds, right? The wounds which his patterns of deception have inflicted upon his brother, his family. Maybe Jacob is trying to make the best out of a difficult situation. He sends messengers ahead to Esau with word of his approach and of his financial success while he's been away. And the messengers return with the news that they found Esau, and Esau is coming to meet Jacob along with 400 of his own men. This is not a welcoming party. This is a show of force. Jacob's fear, it seems, stems from simply facing up to the reality that the dangers of returning to the scene of his crime are great. It seems the years have not dulled the animosity his brother feels. Jacob knows this. After all, he's received word as well that Esau has vowed to kill him. So Jacob divides up his household and his belongings into two groups, thinking that if one group is attacked, maybe the other group might be spared. And then he further divides up his flocks and his herds and his servants, and he gives them instructions to divide into smaller groups and stagger their approach to Esau. And when each group meets Esau, they are to say that they are Jacob's, and they bring a tribute, a gift, from Jacob to Esau, and that Jacob is behind. Now, whether this is to make him seem wealthier than he really is, or to tire out his brother Esau, or simply just buy a little more time is unclear, but it's the only move Jacob has left. 
And finally, in our reading today, he sends off his wives and all of his possessions across the river Jabbok. And the storyteller says that Jacob was all alone. It seems he's in the process of letting go, isn't he? The fate of his herds of cattle, goats, camels, and sheep are in the hands of his servants and his brother. The safety of his family, of all of his servants, now rests with Esau. And all that property that he's worked so hard to acquire, it's all on the other side of the river. Jacob is alone with danger and uncertainty all around him. Now, you and I may not be tricksters in the same category as Jacob, estranged from family, disaster just waiting for us, but I suspect that we have all been at our own Jabbok River. You know, those times in our lives when we've left behind so much and we feel vulnerable, where any illusion we might have had that we could control things has been stripped away, and we're sure it's just a matter of time before the other shoe drops. And none of the choices that are before us seem like good ones, yet we know that we're going to have to choose what our next step might be. It's one of those moments in life which is fraught with anxiety and when we feel most at lo alone in the world. Switch back to our gospel reading for a moment. It's filled with people. Crowds once again are following Jesus, and this time it occurs immediately after Matthew tells us of the arrest and the execution of John the Baptist by Herod. John, you may remember, had been a vocal critic of Herod's governing and his very unseemly relationship to his brother's wife, Herodias. And in response, Herod throws John in prison, but he holds off executing him because he he fears a public backlash. But then he throws a lavish birthday party for himself, and the daughter of Herodias dances there for him and his guests. And in response, Herod swears to give her whatever she asks for. So she goes to her mom and says, what should I ask for? And her mom says, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herod's boxed into a corner. So he follows through on his pledge. The prophet is beheaded. His head is brought to the girl on a platter in the middle of his birthday party. And word of the gruesome deed spreads. So Jesus hears the news. And along with it, the rumors that Herod will now turn his sights on Jesus and seek to silence him next, just as he murdered John the Baptist. And so Jesus seeks some solitude for a little bit to try and discern his next steps. And he, he gets off in a boat to head to a deserted place to be alone. And we get that. Jesus needs a little space to grieve John's death, to pray for direction for the next stage of his ministry. He pulls away from the crowds, seeking to be alone. But neither Jesus nor Jacob are alone for long. Jacob's by the river, Jabbok, and he finds himself confronted by a mysterious figure who wrestles with him through the night. The text is unclear. 
And the identity of the man is never fully explained, which leads scholars to wonder if this might be a metaphor a metaphor for all of those struggles that Jacob has interiorly as he wrestles with his past, with the devious person he's become, with the guilt he may carry, with the choices that are before him. The text invites us to wonder about the wrestling without receiving a clear answer. We just know for certain that this is a monumental struggle and neither prevails against the other throughout the night and the two are just gripped in an endless embrace until dawn approaches. Solitude escapes Jesus as well. The crowd tracks him down, following him along the shoreline. And when Jesus finally brings the boat in, the crowds are there waiting for him. But Jesus isn't annoyed with them. Instead, he has compassion on them, the storyteller says, spending time with them, curing their sick that had been brought to him. And then evening falls, and the disciples realize that they have a problem. Maybe it's the growing, growling from their own stomachs, but they have a major dilemma on their hands, and they come to Jesus, and they explain the whole situation. It's evening. All these people here, they're going to need to have food. And if we don't do something soon, they're going to be stranded out in the country all night long with no supplies. But we, your disciples, have a solution. It would be best if you sent them all away. Because we're in the middle of nowhere. So you send them away, and they'll make their way back to the villages where they'll be able to buy the food that they need. Problem solved. back on the banks of the Jabbok River. As morning light slowly makes its entrance, the stranger reaches out and touches Jacob's hip and throws it out of joint. And even then, Jacob refuses to give in and the stranger begs to be let go and Jacob stubbornly hangs on saying, I will not let go until you bless me. He doesn't know what kind of blessing to ask for. He hasn't a clue what he needs in this dark night of the soul, but there, worn out and sweaty, the pain in his hip flaring, Jacob holds on for dear life, not until you bless me. And there, after the struggle, after the long, dark night of soul-searching in the grip of a stranger, Jacob receives a new name. He's no longer Jacob the heel grabber, Jacob the supplanter. No, he leaves that place as Israel, a name which the narrator defines as he strives with God, a God wrestler. Now, the meaning is actually a little more ambiguous than that. It probably means something more like God will prevail, but it works in the story, so let's go with it. And that night is life-changing for Jacob. He names that place Peniel, God's face, for he believes that in that struggle he has seen God face to face and he's lived. Sun comes up, he leaves that place of struggle, but he's not the same man that he was the day before. That night leaves a mark on him. 
As he makes his way to meet his brother, he limps every step of the way. A physical, ever-present reminder of that spiritual turning point for him, of a blessing forged in struggle alone on the banks of the river Jabbok. Back in Matthew, the disciples wait expectantly for Jesus to take up their recommendation. Call it a day. But instead, Jesus turns their question around. He says, there's no need to dismiss them. You give them supper. And the disciples say, wait, what? (laughs) Do you not see all the crowds here, Jesus? Thousands of people, and we got nothing. Well, we got a few loaves and a couple of fish. I love how the disciples' first reaction is to discount what they already have. We've nothing here. Oh, except for a little bit of bread and some fish. They do. They've got food. What they lack is the imagination to see how what they have can make a difference in the face of need. So Jesus orders them to bring the food to him and he makes the crowd sit down on the grass and then he takes the five loaves and the two fishes and he looks up to heaven and he blesses and he breaks and he shares. Does that sound familiar? It does, doesn't it? We do that each time we celebrate communion together. We bless, we break, we share. Notice also he gives the food not to the crowds directly, but to the disciples. You know, the ones who weren't sure, who were sure that they didn't have any resources. The ones who lacked the ability to imagine a different outcome in the wilderness. He gave them the loaves and the fishes and instructed them to distribute. I suspect they do so a little sheepishly. Or maybe maybe with a growing sense of wonder and celebration as their meager offerings are shared with the entire crowd. The story says that all ate and were filled, and the leftovers filled 12 baskets. 12 baskets. One for each of those disciples who could not imagine a banquet in the wilderness. Back in Genesis, we see Jacob limping. He catches up with his wives and his children. And just after our reading ends, Jacob looks up, and in the distance, he sees his brother coming to him with 400 men. And in the pit of our stomach, we know what happens next, right? It's the perfect scene for a battle, isn't it? These two great gatherings of people marching headlong into conflict with one another. And we know Jacob's story. We know all his sneaky ways. He always seems to get the better of a situation. And those who clash with him often lose. But today, today is different. Jacob sees his brother and all his brother's men and Jacob bows deeply to the ground. Seven times as he slowly approaches his brother in the ancient world, this is the way one would approach a monarch. 
And at the same time, Esau sees Jacob. And all the anger and pain wells up in him. And he's still a man of action, though. So he doesn't stand. He doesn't wait for his brother to arrive. Nor does he send out all of his men to fight and take what he thinks belongs to him. Now Esau runs. He runs out to meet his long-lost brother and embraces him. He falls on his neck and he kisses him. And the two grown men weep together. There's no battle. There's no conflict. It's not what we expected, is it? Instead of bloodshed, what we are given is a story of reconciliation to surprise us. We've been set up for the confrontation since Jacob was born. With all the predictions that the younger will rule the elder, the blessings from his father that were stolen, and God's blessing that Jacob's children would be like dust of the earth. Everything in this story so far has led us to believe that the relationship will never be restored, that healing is not to be, that this encounter will be another moment of Jacob wrestling to get the better of his brother. But Jacob and Esau prove our predictions wrong. The two reconcile. Esau, who has every reason to be angry, forgives. Jacob, who's always done whatever it takes to get the best for himself without thinking about anybody else, is humble and generous. And the two brothers don't wrestle but embrace. In the end, Jacob settles down nearby And the two brothers and their clans live in peace. Perhaps it's an uneasy peace, but they live alongside one another in a most unexpected ending. Back to the disciples. They've heard all the teachings of Jesus, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which planted in a garden becomes a great tree and all the birds of the air are placing their nests in it. They've heard Jesus say the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that's hidden in three measures of flour and it leavens all of it. And yet when they're faced with a real life crisis, their imaginations fail them and they still see the world through the eyes of Herod. Think of it. Herod throws a party for himself and everyone who's attending is a hoo-hoo and there's food and there's music and everything they could want. But it's self-contained. It's invitation only. And that perfectly planned party celebrates not life, but in the end, death. And then there's Jesus. With this open invitation, not turning anybody away, not seeing people as a threat, but with compassion. And when people get hungry, it turns out that there's more than enough for everyone. Jesus shows his disciples there's another way, and he throws an impromptu party where there is plenty, where all are welcome, where no one is turned away, and where there is a celebration of life and hope. And if that's not the gospel, I don't know what is. We are so much like those disciples, though, aren't we? 
We are experts at spotting the problems. Well, there's not enough food. We don't have enough volunteers. Our giving is down. Our attendance is declining. Woe is us. And Jesus looks around and looks at everything that we have, and he's got to be shaking his head, wondering why we lack the holy imagination to envision the realm of God unfolding around us. Last week in the Daily Yonder newsletter on rural life, I don't know if you read it or not, but there was a piece on a little restaurant in Boone, North Carolina, and it's called Farm Cafe, and it was founded back in 2012 by Renee Boffman. And Boone, you may know, is a small college town, right? The Appalachian State University is there, and they've been experiencing steady growth through the years, and along with that growth comes the affordability crisis, right? As many jobs are service and tourism-based, and so they're minimum wage, and there aren't a lot of benefits, and folks begin to struggle with two or three jobs just to make ends meet, and they still have the choice of whether to eat or to pay their bills. So Boffman and a few others looked around, and they saw the need, and they wondered how they could make a difference in Boone. What could they do? And the idea of a pay-what-you-can restaurant started kind of bubbling up with locally sourced food, where everyone walks through the door and is fed well, is treated with dignity, and makes connections with other people in the community, and where all folks from all walks of life sit down at tables side by side, breaking bread together. And over time, these conversations got a little more serious, and they tried a little fundraising, a few pop-up meal events here and there. And then when the old Boone drugstore location was looking for a new tenant, they took a leap of faith. And they opened up Farm Cafe. And farm stands for feed all regardless of means. And a recent menu read meatloaf or veggie loaf with smashed taters, blueberry balsamic kale salad, and our locally mixed green salad. For dessert, double chocolate chip cookies and chocolate chip almond cookies. Suggested price, $10. Pay what you can spare or volunteer if you can't. If, and if neither, sit, nourish, and chat. And in 2022, they served nearly 16,000 meals. Five years ago, with a grant, they added a food recovery and redistribution program called Full Circle. And in it, volunteers prepare ready-to-eat meals and meal kits using product, produce from local businesses that were at risk of going bad. And so those meals are now offered to food insecure folks in their area. What an amazing example of a holy imagination, folks, of seeing abundance despite the lack, of creating an alternative outcome which feeds both body and spirit where there is more than enough and there are baskets left over. Now the gospel story waits until the end to deliver the most dramatic detail of all. There were 5,000 men there fed, the gospel says. 
and then along with women and children too. It's a moment of radical abundance. You couldn't even count how many people were fed by those loaves and fishes. And we find this story in all four Gospels, and in Matthew and Mark, it's in there twice because it's so important. There's something powerful in a story that upsets our expectations, my friend. Much like the disciples, we see need around us, and then we just expect everyone to take care of themselves. For the Herods of the world have told us that the needs of others are their problem and not ours. But Jesus sees the world with eyes of compassion, which leads him to serve by healing, embodying service through giving. Now you may be thinking these two stories have very little in common. A scoundrel wrestling with a mysterious stranger in the dark, and disciples confronted by hungry crowds in a deserted place. But I say to you, God is present in both places. And when God is present, my dear disciples, we better expect the unexpected to happen. Because God is calling us to imagine reconciliation when the world expects conflict. To imagine healing when we see great suffering. To imagine abundance when all the world sees is lack. Imagining God's realm of peace in our community. Imagining the ties that bind us together growing stronger. Imagining children with enough to eat. Imagining those with disabilities finding a place at the table. Imagining justice instead of division in our world. Imagine the world anew, and then Jesus says, be my disciples and go do it. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.